And this is Politics Friday on NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. Later in the hour, I'll talk to a historian about the indictment of former President Donald Trump and what it says about where we are now. But first, the legislature has a few days off for Passover and Easter, so we thought it would be a good time to check in with some of the state's top elected officials and get an update on what they're doing. Keith Ellison is doing a lot. He's three months into his second term as Minnesota's attorney general, and in that three months, the DFLer has secured funding to add criminal prosecutors to his office. He's convened community meetings on the proposed merger between Sanford Health and Fairview Health Systems. He's launched an investigation into two automakers about how easy it is for thieves to steal the vehicles they make. And he's gone to court against a major e-cigarette maker. And just yesterday, he made a rare move to ask the governor to allow him to intervene in a homicide prosecution in Hennepin County, and the governor agreed. Attorney General Keith Ellison joins me now in the studio. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thank you for having me. Really glad to be here. Well, I want to just ask about this Hennepin County case, uh, just so I have the facts right. Uh, it involves two suspects who were juveniles, 15 and 17, uh, when they were alleged to have shot and killed a young woman, Zaria McKeever, uh, at the direction of her former boyfriend. This happened last fall. The Hennepin County attorney, Mary Moriarty, offered the two teenagers plea agreements as juveniles uh, instead of seeking to have them charged as adults. Yesterday, you made what I say is a rare move to ask the governor to allow you to intervene. The governor agreed. Why did you feel you needed to do that? Well, let me uh, start by saying that uh, this is an active litigation matter, so I want to keep what I have to say about it to a minimum I hope members of the public will understand that it's not proper for a prosecutor to talk about the case. Uh, but I can say a few things. One is that, um, you know, the the allegation is that this one, this one of those individuals you mentioned, that one of the teenagers uh, helped stalk, home invaded, and then shot this 23-year-old woman, 23-year-old woman five times with her child present in the house. And... Um, that uh, that kind of disposition uh, warrants more than a juvenile disposition. Um, Twenty four months, uh, you know, uh, it was is what has been uh, represented as what he's facing, uh, and um, I'm just I'm going to stop it right there. But I'll just say that I came to the conclusion, along with the community, along with clergy, along with members of law enforcement, along with the governor, along with the mayor of Brooklyn Park. Uh, uh, that this was inappropriate and uh, in the middle of a juvenile crime spike, this is exactly uh, the wrong disposition for this case. So I'll I'll probably limit my comments to just that. And so uh, I felt that it would be important to to make sure that uh, any juvenile who uh, commits a heinous offense should know that there's going to be uh, meaningful accountability. And so I thought that that would be important, and that's why I asked the governor to appoint uh, me in the case. And there there was a hearing scheduled today for the older of the two juveniles. I understand that your office has uh, gotten that continued now? That's right. So so it'll be delayed for a couple of weeks? That's, that's correct. And again, I want to make sure that everybody who works at the Hennepin County Attorney's Office, our, high, our excellent uh, staff, great lawyers, great people who who work there. This is a difference of opinion between the leadership and the community and uh, has no reflection on the staff there. I have a very high opinion of them, uh, but uh, we've got to make sure that people have a right to be safe 
And Zaria McKeever's life mattered and her daughter's, who's now orphaned, her life matters. And so we have to uphold these community standards for safety. The Hennepin County attorney, Mary Moriarty, put out a statement last night. She uh, said, uh, your decision to intervene was unprecedented and deeply troubling. She said it should alarm prosecutors around the state. She noted that uh, other county attorneys were against it. Um, She said that she was elected by the people of Hennepin County and that she should be accountable to them and not to you. Do you have any response to that? No, I'll uh, decline to respond to that. Is this a sign that your office will be more active in taking criminal cases or trying to intervene in criminal cases when you're not asked to? I hope this is the last time this ever happens. That is my earnest prayer. Um, And I can tell you that uh, uh, I do respect the fact that county attorneys are elected in our state. Uh, They overwhelmingly do a wonderful job. uh, And I absolutely respect what they do. But the reason the Minnesota statute exists is that there are very rare occasions where a county attorney does something so far outside the lines of uh, community standards and acceptable understanding of justice that uh, the, the statute is necessary for the governor to be able to to intervene on behalf of the people of that county. And so this is a very rare thing. I can assure you that that I that it is it, that I took very very great pains to think about it, uh, but came to the conclusion uh, that. Um, uh, justice had to prevail for the family, for the community, uh, for for a, a, a criminal justice system that had meaningful proportionality. Uh, and so I took the decision that I did, but it is a rare occurrence. It will not be uh, happening in the future uh, and, unless it's ex- extreme circumstances that I cannot imagine now. The County Attorneys Association, though, did op- oppose your decision, right? Well, the County Attorneys Association also uh, expressed uh, disagreement uh, with with the uh, with the disposition of this matter too. They, they their position was nuanced, uh, and what they really wanted to do is say, "Look, you know, we don't want to start any precedent here." And I said, "I don't want to start any precedent here." So we agree. I mean, uh, we, we, I mean, you know, they 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 did say that they hope that this is not any kind of a trend, and I can assure them that it's not. I want to work with them. And I hope uh, to look forward to doing that in the future. Can I just uh, zoom out a little bit on the issue that uh, the Hennepin County attorney says is an important one here? And that is the juvenile justice system, the way juveniles are treated in the system. Um, She says that she, uh, you know, said to voters last fall that she would seek to change that. And, And she said this morning that, We've been locking juveniles up in this country and in this state uh, for these uh, dangerous crimes, and it hasn't made us any safer. What is the the right thing to do with juveniles when they're involved in crimes like this? Well, let me tell you, when you say crimes like this, um, I'm going to interpret you to mean uh, premeditated stalking and um, home invasion and shooting five times. Cases like that, um, I don't think the community wants to be uh, handled uh, with with just juvenile disposition. I think that there's a lot of folks out there who feel that uh, kids who are involved in maybe 
drug offenses, uh, maybe various offenses that maybe the system does not need to uh, incarcerate them. Maybe it might even be counterproductive in certain situations, or maybe they need a more intense focus, more focus on chemical and mental health. And I think there's a lot of support for that position. In fact, I support that position. I welcomed cases like Miller versus Alabama, which said that there shall be no death penalty for juveniles. And and, and in other cases that say there'll be no presumptive life imprisonment for juveniles. And I think those decisions are welcome. But I also think you can take something too far. And I think uh, this is an example of it. So what I'm hearing you say is that this is just the wrong case. Absolutely. To do that. Yes. Um, crime was a big issue in the campaign last year. Uh, you you said then that your office's job is to come in when county attorneys ask you to. Right. Uh, you have added seven new prosecutors, or you at least have the funding to do that from the well, legislature. Well, we 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 got the funding for uh, about three. Okay. And then in June we'll get the funding for the rest. So yeah, so okay. we'll have all the money, uh, and you know. God willing, you know, by the time the session's over. And have you hired any of those folks? Yes, yet? as a matter of fact, uh, we just completed uh, we just completed the final round of interviews, and we've got offers out, and that's pretty much all I can say about that. Okay. And so, <laughs> so what what will they be doing if if you're not going to be uh, aggressively going out and taking cases from prosecutors? You know, what we will don't they be doing? we don't really need to be aggressively taking cases. We never have before. We don't intend to do it anymore. Um, uh, unless there's some absolutely unforeseeable circumstance. Um, but uh, county attorneys call us and say, would you work with us on this? I mean, we've got cases going on all over the state. You know, we're, we've got a few in Beltrami County. We've got them in various parts of the state. The, the attorney general's office is an important backup prosecutor in some of the most egregious cases in the, in the state uh, in counties where they're just they're overburdened and they just need some some help. Um, and so that's something that uh, so when I asked for an additional number, uh, that that number was based on conversations with county attorneys. Uh, and I just want to say the uh, county attorneys of our state are a critical constituency for me. And uh, the last thing I want to do is is be on the other side of the table as them. Uh, and so we're going to be working together and cooperatively and in a supportive way. And just uh, so I understand it. With this case in Hennepin County, will you work with the attorneys in the Hennepin County attorney's office, or will people in your office handle this? My my office will handle it, um, but we're open to work with uh, with the Hennepin County uh, if they're willing to work with us. Uh, let me change the subject. We're talking with Keith Ellison, the attorney general of the state of Minnesota, on the uh, Sanford-Fairview merger. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you asked for a delay. They agreed to delay until May, and then this week they said they've agreed to delay again until late summer at the earliest. What uh, specifically are you looking at investigating in terms of this merger? Yeah. So what the, the real, let me tell you what the questions are. The questions are, on the area of antitrust, uh, will this consolidation uh, undermine market um, competitiveness? Will it result in you know the closing of clinics what how what what will it mean in terms of Minnesotans ability to get the health care that they need where they need it and again these are very important questions in terms of regionalism because there's some parts of our state where you may have to drive 2 hours to get to a doctor's appointment you know so this is an important thing uh so it's a matter of um uh you know trying to make sure we have fair competitive markets 
and that's that's one prong. The other one is that both of them are charitable assets. Uh, both of them are nonprofits, and Fairview is a Minnesota charity. And so when you run a charity, you know, board members have a responsibility to meet fiduciary responsibilities. They have duties of loyalty, duties of care, duties of competence to make sure that the charity is being run well. Uh, and uh, so it, that those are an, another group of, of factors. And one of the things we want to know, will, will Minnesota charities who have received tax breaks from our state and other benefits, will they be in control of a of a folks in another state, you know, North or South Dakota, um, because it's because uh, Sanford has got its biggest footprint in, in South Dakota, but it's actually incorporated in North Dakota. Um, you know, what will that mean for Minnesota? And again, Minnesota, I mean, look, I, I, I love North and South Dakota. I go there to vacation. I have friends there. But the culture here and there is unique. It is different. We believe in the right for people to join unions in Minnesota. It's a long tradition. Minnesota's a union state. South Dakota's not. It's a right-to-work state. Minnesota has a strong tradition of a woman's right to choose. South Dakota does not. In Minnesota, we believe that if a person needs gender-affirming care, they should get it. Uh, and there are certain comments that the governor's made, who I used to serve in Congress with, by the way, mm. and is a fine person. I'm just talking about her philosophy, not her as a person. That she she has uh, made comments that uh, she does not she's, she that are not supportive of people in the trans community. So there are different um, dif- differences in the way that we approach things from our state to theirs. That's fine. That's why you have different states, so the people of that of that locality can make their own decisions their own way. Mm-hmm. And so these are the questions that uh, that we're focusing our attention on. We've. Uh, and and again, to a somewhat extent, you know, this is an investigation that is somewhat still um, uh, it's 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 a not pu- non-public investigation. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy to tell everybody that we've we've moved into another phase. We're now taking depositions, uh, you know, live statements from people under oath. We're continuing to get documents and we're to continuing to try to come to the answers so that we can do the best thing for our state. And does a, a late summer deadline give you enough time, number one? And two, you say it's non-public. Will you make your investigation public at some point? Yes, we will make our investigation public at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a Minnesota Data Practices Act, which delineates what data is public, what data is not. And so while we're invest- conducting the investigation, it is not. Uh, so I'm not at liberty to say who we're talking to and stuff like that. But we're we're talking to people with relevant information. We're gathering documents. And, of course, one other thing that I did not mention that I better bring up is that the university hospital is a very key player in this. You know, Seventy percent of all doctors in Minnesota graduate from University of Minnesota. This is a, a tremendously important resource which needs to stay in the hand of hands of Minnesota. Uh, and Minnesota, you know, uh, University of Minnesota Medical School does, you know, something that we're all proud of for many good reasons. Uh, and they also they have a unique mission. Their mission is their mission is not just make money as a hospital. They're, they have an academic research mission. Mm-hmm. And so that is uh, so sometimes that's not the most efficient way to to do medicine, but it might be the best way to train doctors. Uh, and so, you know, we're we're very, very, uh, you know, uh, possessive about guarding that right uh and so these all these factors are are there and again like i said the union issues uh workers they're very concerned and the kind of care that would be provided you could stop the merger 
if you want, could you? Couldn't you? Uh, the answer to that is I can only stop the merger if I have a legal basis to do so. So it's not really – so they're not submitting it to my approval. Mm-hmm. They the, What happens is that there, there are – there are any trust laws, there are charities laws, there's some other laws that have to do with public interest, and, and I would have to show that they violated one of them in order to file a lawsuit to try to stop it, and then it would ultimately be up to a judge. Okay. Uh, well, let me ask you about another investigation because sure. that time is uh, slipping away from us So here. fast. I know. It's, it's too <laughs> fast. Um, Hyundai and Kia. Sure. The, 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 they don't put the technology in the cars to stop people from stealing them. They're getting stolen like you wouldn't believe. True. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. We're, so, looking at, we're looking at uh, increases in theft of like 600 plus percent in St. Paul, 800 plus in uh, Minneapolis. And they're not just, I mean, it is tragic enough to walk out and see that your car uh, is gone. And now what's there is just glass on the ground. But there have been a lot of accidents, some of them fatal. There have been shooting incidents. There have been loss of life. There was a 70-year-old Hmong elder who was killed by some kid fleeing in a Kia. So this is a, even more dangerous than just the deprivation of your car. Mm-hmm. So what are you hoping to get out of these automakers? Well, uh, we're, tr- we're, we're, we're in the middle of an investigation right now, and that means we're formally – we serve something called civil investigative demands on them, which are formal demands for documents and information – and, uh, you know, uh, we we are very concerned about them. Uh, we've, I, By the way, before I ever filed the lawsuit, I sent a letter to them saying uh, that they should do a recall and fix all the cars. They've not they've declined to do that. Uh, but but I believe that there's reason to believe that they're, um, you know, that, that to save money, they've basically um, made the cars less safe and put us all at risk. So mm-hmm. if we find that to be the case, we will be we will be pursuing uh legal claims against them. And some of your critics have said, uh, why are you going after the car makers? Why don't you go after the thieves? This is an excellent question. First of all, I want to commend the police departments who have done made a big dent on that and the county attorneys who've prosecuted these cases. That's their job, not mine. You know, but uh, why not prevent the problem? So I say to my critics, hey, let's work together to prevent the problem. If we can cut the number of cases that the police have to go investigate, then that's better, right? isn't it? So that's like saying, why don't you just uh, go after people who do burglaries, don't put in alarms? Well, you know, we're trying to prevent the problem and catch people who've violated the law, both. So I'm glad they asked that question. I'm glad to be able to answer it. Uh, one other issue, this uh, case that the state is, I believe, in litigation with right now against Jewel Labs. And We're in trial now. In trial right now, right. Yeah. Um, why'd you go to trial on that? Why not settle? Because, you know, when you talk, when you tabulate the damages that the the uh, Jewel and Altria inflicted upon the state of Minnesota, they never approached anything uh, that would compensate us to correct the uh, misinformation and uh, the damage that they caused. So uh, we're not against settling cases. I believe settling cases is actually better than going to trial. But we never got to a point where the numbers were close enough. So uh, that's what trials are for. And I think that it's beneficial because we've been able to really show the public uh, the harm that Juul and uh, these vaping products are causing. And I think that's important for public education. Altria said they lost money on the deal. And Juul said to Kids were vaping here before they even came into the market. Yeah, and we say they accelerated the vape. They actually came up with technology that dramatically increased it. 
we've already, you know, and 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 so we uh, the jury will sort it all out in the end. Uh, I'm very confident we have a strong case. What about the case against the oil companies? That's still going. Well, you know what? That case uh, is interesting. So when we file that case in state court based on violation of state consumer claims, the defendants try to remove it to federal court. And then uh, so so it's it's caught up in procedural stuff right now. Uh, We're hoping to get a decision that will bring it back, remand it back to state court and we'd be more and and then pursue the litigation. But, you know, right now it's just caught up in in uh, in uh, like uh, in procedural disputes uh, in the court system and in the appellate court system. All right. uh, Keith Ellison, thanks so much for coming by. Our time is up. I hope you'll come back anytime. And I'm so glad to be with you. And thank you. Love talking to you. That's Keith Ellison. He's the uh, Attorney General of the state of Minnesota. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. An elections bill is on the agenda of the DFL-controlled House and Senate at the state capitol. Legislation that funds the Secretary of State's office and makes changes to election laws is moving toward a vote in both the House and Senate. Now, the legislature is taking a long weekend break for Passover and Easter, so I'm very pleased that Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon is joining me now in the studio to talk about some of the changes we're likely to see in election laws this year. Secretary Simon, thanks a lot for coming in today. Thanks for having me. I know uh, you've been involved with this legislation, putting it together. Um, One of the main changes that I think is in both bills would allow for early an 18-day early voting period. How exactly would that work? Well, it is what it sounds like. It's early voting, but it's not the kind of voting where there are 3,000 precincts or polling places around Minnesota. It would be in a limited number of places like a city hall or a county courthouse, just as we do right now for in-person absentee. The Mm. difference for the voter is you could go in during that time period. You wouldn't have to fill out an absentee ballot application. It would just be a lot like game day, like election day. You'd go in. If you're on the list, you would be able to vote. You wouldn't have to deal with putting envelopes inside of other envelopes or applying for an absentee ballot. You could just vote like you do on election day. And we have something already in Minnesota law substantially similar that allows people uh, from one week before the election until the election to do much the same thing. So some of it's sort of semantics, but what it'll look like for everyday folks is, hey, you can go into a place near where you live a public building, perhaps, and you can vote without the hassle of an absentee application process. And why uh, 18 days? Why is that important? Well, that was a subject of quite a bit of negotiation. Different states do it, different time periods. Minnesota's kind of in the sweet spot, I would say. Uh, It's just long enough and just short enough. In other words, it gives administrators time to do what they need to do, but gives voters enough leeway to vote the way that they increasingly want to vote. Let's not forget, more and more people don't wish to vote just on a given day, at a given place, during given hours on election day. They want to vote either by absentee or in person before. So this was the agreed upon length of time with county election administrators and voting rights advocates. And I think it's going to work well. And the thought is, again, that every county would offer it, but maybe just in 
a couple locations or one location? Right. You'd have to offer it. But much like today, when you vote in-person absentee, it's not as if you go necessarily to one of 3,000 places like a polling place on election day. So I, for example, live in the city of Hopkins. I would go to Hopkins City Hall. Each city typically has one place, sometimes more if you're really big, like Minneapolis, where you would go, same place you would go to vote early absentee would be the place that you would go to vote in the regular sense and non-absentee. And um, does early voting give one party an advantage over the other? No, it does not. And you know, over the years, we've seen an ebbing and a flowing of what the tendencies are, whether Republicans vote early or Democrats vote early or someone else votes early. But over the long haul, no, there is no partisan advantage to voting early, period. Now, another thing I know they've been talking about at the Capitol is automatic voter registration. Right. Um, Well, tell us what that is and how that would work. Yeah, it's a little bit of a misnomer. I've supported this for a long time. People hear the word automatic and maybe they think some computer is doing something. No, Mm -hmm. real human beings, flesh and blood people are really doing the filtering and screening. The automatic part is, though, when there's an interaction with government, like when you get or renew a driver's license, a person who furnishes that information, because it's the same info that you need to register to vote, would be uh, presumably wishing to register to vote. They'd be put in that pile of people who would be on the voter rolls if and only if they meet all the requirements. They're over 18. They're a citizen of the United States. They're a resident of Minnesota and so forth. If and only if all of that is clear, then they're put in a pile where they would end up on the voting rolls. It's a one-stop shop instead of a two-stop shop, which is our current system. And and it would basically make it an opt-out if you'd have to say, no, I don't want to do that in order for it not to happen. That's right. And is that in both bills now yes, at the Capitol? Yes, okay. it is. So it's, it is at this point looking... Uh, uh, like a very good bet to pass this year. And again, there's so many reasons to to have that law. It's not only about getting people into the system. It's about making our voting rolls even more clean and even more accurate than they are right now. And people much earlier than usual will already have been filtered and screened and checked to make sure that they meet all of the eligibility requirements. That's a good thing. All right. Another thing that they've been talking about, and I know you support, pre-registering 16 and 17-year-olds, even though they can't vote yet, to get them pre-registered. What's the thinking behind that? Right. Well, first of all, it's a big cost savings. It also gets people who are of that age um, acquainted with being a voter before they are actually a voter. And that's a good thing we know. Pre-registration doesn't mean actual registration. You can't do that, of course, until you're 18-year-old. But it means that someone who's 16 or 17 could fill out the necessary information. And if and only if they are checked and screened and filtered and meet all the criteria, then on their 18th birthday, automatically, they would be in the system. And many other states do this right now, red states, blue states, other states in between, and even Minnesota does some version of this. We have a law right now, currently on the books, which says that a 17-year-old who will be 18 by Mm -hmm. the next election can already do this. So we're just evening the playing field, saying it's all 17-year-olds, not just those who will be 18, plus 16-year-olds, just as many states do. It's really efficient, it's cost-saving, and it's good uh, in terms of boosting turnout among those who will someday be 18. Do you think it has a benefit of uh, getting kids more interested in civics, too? Uh, Well, we think so. And there have been studies done out there by people who have really looked at this that shows that it's not just happy talk. It really does increase the level of voting among young people. There's an actual bump in places that have had pre-registration. 
uh, states like Hawaii or Florida or others where it really does move the needle. It really does make folks that age more likely to vote that first time they're eligible. And we know that if uh, young people vote that first time that they're eligible at 18, 19, 20, and the like, they are much more likely to make voting a lifelong habit. That's the goal here. I know uh, one other thing that the legislature is trying to do is stop uh, interference with election officials, stop uh, election workers from being hassled. What are they proposing there, and what would this legislation do? Well, we need uh, some teeth in Minnesota law to protect our election workers, and I'm referring both to election judges, when uh, we need 30,000 people to step up every election and, and, and perform that function, and the people who do this year-round 24-7 in our counties and cities and townships. And we've seen not just nationally, but here in Minnesota, very much here, um, a disturbing spike in the number of incidents of harassment or threats or intimidation of those folks. So we need laws that will enable county prosecutors, uh, the attorney general's office, and others to help when someone's conduct interferes with the actual election. And I want to be very clear here. We've got a First Amendment. We've got to guard it and we've got to protect it. It's any citizen's right to ask tough questions, to raise their voice, to show skepticism or even hostility about the system. Let's bring it on. Let's have the argument. But when you, for example, let me use actual Minnesota examples told to me directly, when somebody who's mad about an election issue follows an election worker to her car after hours in a parking lot, that is not okay. When someone who's agitated about an election's issues harasses a county election official at home multiple times over the weekend on her home phone, that's not okay. And finally, this is one I heard about just last December after the 2022 election. The head of an elections in a county was physically accosted at the workplace by someone who was mad about an elections uh, issue. She had to call the sheriff, which fortunately was in the same building as her. The point is, there is where you're veering from speech, which of course we all celebrate and want to protect, to conduct that interferes with the actual election. And when it comes to that conduct, the law uh, demands that we grant more authority to those who can do something about it, our county attorneys, our prosecutors, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're talking to Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon about legislation getting close to a vote at the Capitol on uh, elections. Um, you know, I know some people came into the session hopeful about ranked choice voting, that it might expand from the cities that are using it now in the municipal elections, maybe even go statewide. Looks like that's not going to happen, right? Well, that's still subject to negotiation. And let me tell you my view on that. So when I was in the legislature, I used to carry or, or author the bill that would allow more cities, most of our cities, to experiment with ranked choice voting if they wish. I still think we need that. I think that's a good thing. Hey, let's have, you know, dozens of laboratories around the state to to test it and to implement ranked choice voting because some voters are very happy with it when they have it. In terms of statewide ranked choice voting, I think that's a slower process. I've said that I don't think we're yet ready from an administrative standpoint to do that in Minnesota, but we could be ready. That's why I support the development of a real substantive thorough task force that will really examine the really big shifts that this would require, the sort of architectural, structural changes that statewide ranked choice voting would require. And once we can isolate those, identify those, uh, name those, um, then I think the legislature will be in a much more comfortable position to act on that if it wishes and adopt it statewide. I know that over the past few decades, uh, changes to election laws have been bipartisan. Uh, 
past few governors sort of made that a condition of signing a bill that it would have to be bipartisan. Uh, you're a Democrat. You're a DFLer. Uh, Republicans, uh, specifically in the House, are saying they were frozen out this year, that their ideas didn't get heard, that uh, some of their amendments didn't get a fair treatment. Um, is it wise to make changes like this without bipartisan support? Well, speaking only for myself and not for members of the legislature, the things that I've been supporting this year, things like automatic voter registration or restoring the right to vote for people who have left prison behind or election worker protection, these are thoroughly bipartisan issues uh, that are nonpartisan, totally nonpartisan in origin and nonpartisan in effect. They don't benefit any particular political party. And all of the things I just mentioned are things that are done all over the country in red states and in blue states. So speaking only for the things that I have championed at the legislature, which is a narrower set than all of the bills and all of the hearings and all of the committees, I think it is important to start from a point of consensus, at least national consensus, on these issues that don't benefit a particular political party, that are in keeping with Minnesota's traditions, um, and that move the ball on democracy. So as to the things that I'm doing in my lane, these are things that are nonpartisan. And by the way, there's no ambush or surprise here. There's things that I and many others have been talking about for many, many years. We've been having these debates, and reasonable people can be on either side of these debates on these bills. But I start from a standpoint of things that are nonpartisan in origin and nonpartisan in effect, and I'm going to keep operating under those assumptions. Is there anything you wanted this year, any changes, any new law that you're not getting? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the, we're always looking to build a better mousetrap. Um, and of the things that I've identified as key priorities, they all happen to be moving right now. Some of them I just mentioned, mm -hmm. restoring the right to vote, election worker protection, pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, automatic voter registration, and more protection, by the way, for voters themselves to protect them from harassment and intimidation. Those things are moving, I'm pleased to say. Those were the key agenda items that I identified over the last few months. So they are moving, fingers crossed and knock on wood. Uh, and I'll leave for next year uh, any sort of residual issues that um, I or others uh, will be pushing for. Do you think after these uh, bills pass and presumably the governor signs them, that Minnesotans can be assured a, a vote that's fairly cast will be fairly counted? I do. That's been our tradition. Minnesotans love to vote. We're good at it. We can brag about it because three out of the f last four elections, we've been number one in the country in voter turnout. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence. Is that Minnesotans, regardless of where they sit or stand politically, they want to vote. They value the vote. And they know fundamentally, despite disagreements that we might all reasonably have about the system and how it should be and what we should add and what should we should subtract, Minnesotans know in their gut and in their heart that our system is fundamentally fair and clean and honest. And that accounts for at least some of the reason why our turnout is so high. That's Steve Simon. He's Minnesota's Secretary of State. Thanks so much for coming in today, Secretary. Thanks for having me. Support comes from Minnesota-made, by-the-yard, maintenance-free outdoor furniture, dining sets, benches, Adirondacks, and more. You can shop now for spring delivery at one of their retail stores or ByTheYard.net. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. 
Americans saw something this week we've never seen before. A former president charged with a crime, arraigned, and pleading not guilty before a judge. Donald Trump has broken many of the norms we associate with the president. Now he's doing the same as a former president. Of course, he's more than just a former president. He's also the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. To reflect on the events of this week and put them into some historical perspective, I'm joined by Tim Naftali, a professor of history and public policy at New York University. He's also the founding director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Professor Naftali, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. I'm just wondering if uh, if you have a sense, uh, has there any ever been anything quite close to what we've seen this week that's happened before in American history? Well, we we came close to seeing um, a former president indicted before, and some some of your listeners will remember the Watergate um, period and. Most of your listeners, perhaps not all, will remember the Clinton um, scandal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of those led to impeachment crises. In the case of Richard Nixon, he resigned before he was impeached, although he was on the road not only to be impeached, but evicted, uh, removed by the Senate. And in the case of, of Bill Clinton, he was impeached, but he was acquitted by the Senate. In both cases, as those presidents either neared the end of their term or, in the case of Nixon, resigned, there was a real question as to whether uh, the prosecutors, their names changed over time, and I won't get into those details, Mm -hmm. but whether they would indict the former president. And in both cases, the decision was not to indict. In one case, President Ford pardoned uh, Nixon, but I will say that it... The special prosecutor at the time actually didn't want to indict Nixon uh, for fear that he could never get a fair trial. And in the case of Clinton, President Clinton and the independent counsel, Robert Ray, came to an agreement where President Clinton admitted being evasive and misleading under oath. And I'll leave it to the lawyers in your listening community as to whether that's admitting to perjury or not. In both cases, there was no indictment. So those are the closest we ever came to a criminal indictment of a former president. And, of course, that taboo, if it was ever a taboo, got broken this past week. Hmm. And I guess there I, there were some other circumstances that were somewhat different. Uh, Clinton was accused of uh, his misconduct, I think, lying, lying under oath in a deposition when he was the president. Trump is accused of something he did before he became president. Um, well, actually, Mike, actually, I, I would have agreed with you until I looked at the actual indictment and the statement of fact, which only came out this week. Right. In fact, the president, President Trump, former President Trump, uh, is being uh, accused of a crime he committed while he was president, because it was while he was president that he signed those checks. And he signed those checks, uh, again, according to the indictment, this is an alleged uh, mm. crime, but he signed those checks in order to um, to uh, defraud the electoral system. Those checks were um, uh, said to be for legal services provided by Michael Cohen, but in fact they were reimbursements for something done by Michael Cohen before the election to aid the Trump campaign. But the actual act of defrauding the U.S. government and the state of New York occurred while the president was in office. 
Okay, good clarification. Thanks for that. Um, I know you're a historian, not a lawyer, but, uh, you know, some people are saying the case doesn't seem that strong and that maybe it's not a felony. Do you have any sense of, of that? Well, here I'm going to talk like some, like most people who um, who could be on a jury. I think it is um, there will be, uh, you know, there are lawyers out there. I'm not a lawyer. There are lawyers out there who are going to pre-try this case. But uh, I believe it's only fair uh, for, the ca- for the case to proceed and for all of us to see the evidence um, and to hear the arguments both from the defense uh, as well as the prosecution. You know, we, we don't even have a jury for this trial yet, and already people are prejudging it. So, yes, um, I believe I've read, by the way, uh, lawyers um, who've made arguments born against this, I have read that this is an unusual uh, use of, of, of the law. I've also read other um, fine lawyers saying, hey, New York's different. Uh, New York, uh, the state of New York has a different approach to uh, these cases of fraud. There's a, a huge, uh, they have huge experience, sadly, because of all the, you know, the fact that New York includes the financial district, uh, Wall Street, they have a, a lot of experience in dealing with white-collar crime, and they have a particular approach, and this uh, Alvin Bragg's uh, indictment actually fits squarely within that approach. Uh, but for lawyers from different jurisdictions, this, may, this approach may seem strange. I don't know. But what I do know is we haven't seen any of the evidence, and uh, the case isn't, uh, the first hearing isn't supposed to be until December, so it seems a little premature, to assess um, uh, whether or not this is a strong or weak case. You're saying we should just wait to see. That's that's hard for the media to do, you know. Um, and- well, well, then, look, it, 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 to be fair, people, there's a curiosity, a hunger for trying to make sense of this. Mm-hmm. And, and I share it, too. And there are a lot of really smart lawyers out there, and they've been asked the question, and they've responded. I would just say to the interested public of which I am a part, because I'm not a lawyer, um, why not wait and see what happens? And one of the, you know, one very important part of our legal system is that the defense gets to see the evidence against the accused. And that hasn't happened yet. And that will happen. And then we'll get to hear the evidence. Um, And then we can all come to our own conclusions, and we'll see what the jury does. In addition, of course, there could be more indictments. Um, well, yeah, we can get into that. Yeah, we can get into that. And, of course, uh, we should also say people are presumed innocent until they're proven guilty. Exactly. Um, um, but, you know, I was going to bring up just the, the media coverage of this. I mean, if nothing else, you have to say that President, former President Trump, he just creates a spectacle no matter what he does. Well, there's a deep cynicism to this, of course. Uh, President Trump um, uh, declared his re-election bid for the second time, right? This is his second effort at getting re-elected. He declared his his re-election bid last year, and um, there's no precedent for that. I mean, when he ran for president in in, in 2016, he announced only the year before. But Mm -hmm. why did he announce? Just after the midterm elections, well, it's more than likely that he announced in order to be a presumptive candidate so that then he could make the argument, if he were indicted, that um, these indictments are an interference in the electoral process in the United States. 
Um, so this president, Donald Trump, knows very well how to manipulate perceptions. He's very good at it. Doesn't mean he always wins. In fact, he's been losing. He's been on a losing streak. But so he understands. And uh, and he also understands that because he is a candidate, he would get more attention than most other people would get. And because he's a former president, you add on to that the fact that, okay, there's going to be attention anyway. Hmm. So it didn't surprise me that the media covered his arraignment and arrest. It would be strange if they hadn't, since we've never had anything like this in U.S. history. Yes, there's this cute story uh, of uh, Ulysses S. Grant uh, getting arrested for a, uh, a moving violation. Can't really say it's a car. It wasn't. Hmm. It was a carriage. Um in 1872, but leaving aside uh, this issue of a, a road violation, no president, former or otherwise, has been arrested. So it made perfect sense to cover that. The real issue was how much to cover of President Trump's reaction. And I believe the, in the end, the media decided uh, a few minutes or uh, into his speech or sometime into his speech from Mar-a-Lago that it was no longer him responding to the charges. It was a campaign speech. Hmm. So there, there's a real problem and challenge for the media, given the uniqueness. And I truly I think usually we don't use the word right properly, but I think there, that it's correct in this case, the uniqueness of some of the circumstances surrounding Donald Trump. There is a real question. Well, it is unique. He is a former president and he is uh, not necessarily the presumptive nominee, but he's certainly a leading candidate hmm. for the nomination. When When is coverage necessary and correct and when is it helping his deceptions mm-hmm. that's a hard call to make sometimes well and, uh, he and and many of his supporters uh, many of the other people running for president say that this indictment went too far it's using the judicial system to go after a political opponent uh what what's your sense of that especially given politics in new york city where you work um is there some truth to that? Keep in mind that in our country, grand juries are grand juries comprise uh, uh, citizens who are doing uh, or asked to do duty. In fact, they are you know requested. Their participation is requested. Um, one has to be very careful about presuming that those citizens uh, are engaged in some kind of political um, attack. Um, Of course, uh, uh, prosecutors can sway grand juries, but in the end, the grand jury, a majority of the grand jury has to decide to go ahead with an indictment. Um, I, I think we have to be very careful about throwing around the idea that if someone we like is indicted, the the whole process was flawed and was a was a was was a, a political hack job. Mm-hmm. I think it's not helpful, particularly in this climate, to assume the institutions are flawed and cynically motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, I just believe we have to see the process work its way through. Now, in the end, if it appears that that uh, the the DA's case is is very weak, then you have to ask yourself, why did he do this? Um, 
Uh, and if it, and if uh, many Americans who don't consider themselves partisan listen to the evidence and the jury finds President Trump guilty, they might say mm, this was a stacked deck. But we haven't we don't even have a jury yet. They haven't even selected the, the jury to act on the indictment from the grand jury. So it seems to me that given the, the toxic nature of our political climate, that this is a time to be even more circumspect in jumping to conclusions about the actions of our institution. Just about a minute left to go here. Um, John Adams said that we should have a nation of law and not of men. How is this whole thing testing the rule of law? Is the rule of law still strong, or, or does this make it stronger or weaker? Well, the fact that a group of American citizens can indict a former commander-in-chief shows the power of our legal system. The character, the use of that power, uh, and what interpretation we should draw from it, I think will only come through the actual trial itself, okay. as we see how the law is applied to a, a person as famous and notorious as Donald J. Trump. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me. That's Professor Tim Naftali of New York University. He's a professor of history and public policy at New York University. That will do it for our Friday program. Matthew Alvarez is our producer. Josh Savageo is the technical director. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next week. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.